We can't talk about our lives as Christians without considering our relationship with money. We can't talk about much of anything, for that matter, without considering money. Because like it or not, our world revolves around it. The exchange and accrual of money is what we're taught to consider from an early age. Doing well and going to a good school will help us get a good job, which is primarily about making good money. I personally can't consider this topic without recalling one of the more memorable conversations I had with a youth early on in my career. This youth was bright, ambitious, and caring. She had a drive, she had drive and she had a strong faith. She was rounding out her high school career, and we were talking about her plans and what she felt God might be calling her to do with her life. With confidence and very matter-of-factly, she told me that she wanted to study medicine, specializing in reconstructive surgery so that she could help repair cleft palates in less developed countries. I was in awe of the clarity of her calling, but before I could even flush with pride, she added, but my mom told me I couldn't make enough money doing that, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I can't judge a parent for wanting the best for their child. But the issue this conversation raises for me is that it highlights our tendency to equate success and happiness with material wealth, to put money first. Sure, we know that cultivating a sense of purpose is the means to real joy and happiness. But there's always this underlying fear that without enough money, we cannot thrive. And of course, there is a basis for that fear. If you don't have money, you cannot function in the society we have created and participate in. A lack of money creates a lack of access to basic needs and services, and that is a real injustice. For the 38 million Americans living in poverty, the reality of not having enough money is a daily challenge that compromises their well-being. But the idea of enough money is subjective. If we examine any of the social issues or justice issues that continue to plague this nation and this world, it's not hard to trace the root of many of our problems, if not all of them, to the incessant pursuit of money and the desire to hold on to it once we have it. Because money is power. Consider the most recent current events involving political unrest and war, or even the debates on student loan debt or affirmative action. In the midst of these debates and realities, we come face to face with systems that prioritize profit and privilege over the well-being and opportunity of individuals. They bring to the forefront our broken relationship with money. When we compare our current culture to Jesus' teachings, it's pretty obvious that we have chosen to participate in worldly systems over what God has asked us to do. Christ told us to take up our cross and follow him, leave everything behind. Christ said, sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and follow me. Christ said, let go of these worldly things, but we didn't, 
and we don't. Money can quickly become the center of our lives. Wealth or a lack of wealth dictates how and where we move about in society, how we are perceived, how we are treated, and what we have access to. Accruing wealth has a massive impact on how we spend the latter part of our lives, even after we stop working to earn it, if we can stop working to earn it. Both subconsciously and purposefully, money becomes a priority, driving our ambitions, shaping our identities, and influencing our choices. So it's no wonder that Jesus has much to say about our relationship with money. He knew that even during biblical times, cash was king. And Jesus is very clear. He says, No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or be loyal to one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And that makes sense. You cannot serve God and wealth. Most of us would say that we want to put God first and that we don't want to lose ourselves on a quest for material wealth, our quest or someone else's. But our current reality dictates that we navigate some kind of relationship with money. So how do we use it faithfully without making it our number one priority? I believe that our parable today does give us some insight. This parable chosen by Bill Humphreys for our summer mixtape sermon series, is arguably one of the most confounding parables that Jesus shares. To give it some context, in the Gospel of Luke, this parable is found sandwiched between the parable of the prodigal son and the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus, both stories with themes of money. Jesus begins our story by setting the scene. A certain rich man, or master, heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. The rich man calls the manager in and tells him to get the books in order because he is being removed from his position. After this conversation, the manager thinks to himself, what am I going to do now? If I don't have this job, I don't know what I will do. I'm too weak for physical labor, and I am too proud to beg. So the manager devises a plan. He figures that if he is out of options, he will need to rely on others once he is let go. He will need people to host him in their homes. So to shore up some relationships, he calls the people who owe his master money. One by one, he tells them to alter their contracts so that they now owe substantially less to his master. He's done them a favor, and hopefully he will be able to cash in a favor with them in return. Our story concludes somewhat unexpectedly when the master actually commends the manager. What? I have questions. First, the rich man says, he heard that the manager was wasting his estate. Did he confirm that before he fired the manager? Was there an injustice here based on fabricated hearsay? Does it even matter as we're making meaning of this story? Also, when the manager reduced the debtor's contracts, was the reduced amount his own commission that he eliminated, making him the martyr, or 
was reducing the debt purely fraud committed for personal gain. I have to tell you that when we break down this parable, I am left with more questions than answers. And unfortunately, these are questions that scholars have also debated for centuries with no clear resolution that I found helpful for our discussion today. Without concrete answers, it's hard to wrap our heads around this parable where Jesus seemingly promotes dishonest money dealings. Without concrete answers, we have to look for meaning in our questions. I think perhaps the most important question is this. Why does the master commend the manager? Luckily, our text does offer a vague answer to this. It says that the master commended the manager not for his dishonest behavior, but rather because he acted cleverly. Jesus adds a cryptic conclusion also promoting cleverness, stating, people who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than people of the light. I still have questions. But if we're using this text to consider how we might use money faithfully in an imperfect system, I do think our parable provides some insight. Howard Thurman, the theologian, educator, and civil rights leader, emphasized the need for individual well-being and spiritual growth as the foundation for social justice work. He was deeply critical of religion used as a tool of oppression, and he posed the question, What does Jesus Christ have to say to the man who stands with his back against a wall? What I see in our parable is a man who has his back against a wall. He is called a manager, but it is likely that he is a slave or a servant who has simply been elevated to the position of manager. So I see a man who understands that he is in real trouble because his livelihood is about to be stripped away. He is too weak for physical labor, so that's not an option, and he doesn't want to beg. So with his back against a wall, I imagine he had few choices. At the end of the day, he knew that salvation rested in the relationships he cultivated. He made a choice. He decided that the system he was participating in was not more important than his individual well-being. He used worldly wealth as a tool to build relationships that could help him realize a life without toil and strife. That is what made him clever in his master's eyes. I can't personally interpret this text as condoning dishonest business dealings because it goes against Hebrew law and all the other teachings of Jesus. But I can imagine Jesus lifting up a man who is out of options and telling him, good for you for finding a way. When your back is against a wall, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself because money comes and goes, but what's important is your well-being and your spiritual health. Now this interpretation must come with a disclaimer because there are multiple entry points if we're gonna insert ourselves into this interpretation there will likely be points in all of our lives when our backs are against a wall, when we are out of options and feeling hopeless. In these circumstances, we might see ourselves in the role of the manager. If I am in this season of life, 
I can rest assured that God is with me. God wants me to find community, and God cares about my well-being. But coming from a place of privilege, I know that I am typically not this person in the story. Because of my privilege, I need to be the person who is looking for the one who's out of options. I need to look for the one who doesn't know what to do next, to look for the one who needs my support. I need to ask myself, am I supporting a system or am I supporting a person? There's a community in Asheville, North Carolina called the Beloved Community. I had the privilege of visiting the Beloved House several years ago. The mission of the community is to serve those living in poverty and experiencing homelessness in the city. They run a free farmer's market, a street medic outreach program, and organize social justice work and activism, among many other ministries. On top of this, the founding pastor opened a home for those experiencing homelessness who might not feel safe in a typical shelter especially transgendered individuals and those coping with mental illness. She and her wife and their adopted twins made the choice to live in that house with limited income, with their clients and friends. They believed that giving up their own material wealth allowed them to relate to their community members in a more meaningful and valuable way. Above all else, their ministry is relational. As confounding as our parable might be, when we consider the broader teachings of Jesus, we can take this story as a reminder that Jesus cared about fostering meaningful and caring communities. The work Jesus did, healing and performing miracles, brought people back into the communities that they needed to thrive. Jesus knows that money is a part of how we navigate this earthly life. And what Jesus taught is that it is a tool, a servant, not a master. If we prioritize wealth and money, the biggest danger is that we lose sight of people, the people with their backs against a wall. So as we navigate our relationship with money, as we come to terms with how and why we use the money we make, Remember that God prioritized people, people who don't have enough. As we debate how to solve student debt crisis and college admission policies, as we navigate political and social issues, remember that Jesus prioritized the person with their back against the wall, even and especially at the expense of a broken system. As we cultivate our own spiritual health, God calls us to serve one another. God calls us to be the ones that welcome others into our home. This calling and service is the start to building a more just and compassionate society. Prioritizing individual well-being and collective thriving over the accumulation of wealth is an embodiment of the transformative message of Christ's love in this world. We can all be part of that transformative work of love, and that's good news.